Okay, I think we'll uh, get going. Hi, I'm uh, Vincent Lloyd. I teach at Villanova University, and I'm on the AAR Publications Committee, and I also uh, edit one of the AAR's book series published collaboratively with Oxford University Press. Uh, the series I edit is called Reflection in Theory uh, in the Study of Religion. Uh, and uh, when AAR surveys its members, we often find that uh, advice on navigating the publication process is one of the most uh, desired uh, things that AAR could offer. And so uh, we thought uh, putting together uh, this panel with the help of uh, Sarah from the AAR staff in the, in the uh, audience uh, would be a, a service uh, for uh, demystifying the process, a process that can sometimes uh, seem uh, scary or... Um, uh, like it uh, is uh, with rules that are opaque uh, by uh, choosing four uh, editors from a diverse uh, set of presses uh, who will each talk about a different uh, aspect of the publication process. We thought we could uh, make, uh, make some of the, the practices and norms more, more transparent and humanize uh, what can, can seem like a, a, frightening, a frightening process. Uh, and while there are a number of uh, uh, topics that, that our four panelists will, will cover, there are some that we've bracketed and, and, and uh, panelists are happy to talk about in the uh, question and answer uh, period. So we're, we're, uh, we'll be starting with uh, Philip Getz from uh, Paul Grave, who will be talking about uh, pre-submission process, going to Rebecca Shilladir from Rutledge, who will talk about uh, different types of books um, that, that are published by academic publishers, and then uh, Elaine Meisner from University of North, North Carolina Press. We'll talk about the peer review process. And then uh, Elizabeth Maselli from Rutgers will talk about uh, formats of books and, and contracts. So sort of ending before uh, the final copy editing and proofs and, and uh, production and marketing phases. But I know uh, colleagues here are happy to talk about that uh, in the question uh, and answer uh, period. Uh, so we'll uh, go through the four uh, panelists. Uh, I may have a couple of questions for them uh, as a group, and then we'll have plenty of time for, for group discussion and informal conversation as well. Um, so without further ado, I'll turn it over to uh, Phil. And so should I do the whole thing right now, or should we do introductions? Oh, oh sorry. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, okay. um, all right. So then, okay. Maybe we can introduce ourselves. And, okay. Um, all right. So my name is Phil Goetz. Uh, I'm, I'm a senior editor at, for, uh, at Palgrave McMillan for Religion and Philosophy. Uh, Palgrave Macmillan is primarily, um, we try to be a cutting edge press for um, research in social sciences and humanities. We also have, um, we also have divisions in economics, business, and finance, and we are pretty much the social science and humanities imprint of um, of the broader Springer Nature Company. Uh, a few years ago, uh, our portion of uh, Macmillan merged with uh, Springer. Uh, the large STEM publisher, and so that has changed our um, our business model slightly, uh, in the sense that now all of our books are available on Springer Link uh, as part of their subject uh, packages, and so a lot of our business model is focused on uh, sales of large digital packages of books to libraries. We also do some um, crossover trade and uh, academic titles, uh, but our our bread and butter is uh, academic um, monographs and edited collections, and we have a large handbook series on, you know, new, new and emerging fields, uh, large, uh, major reference works collections, and uh, things like that. And um, looking forward to the discussion today. 
Hi, I'm Elizabeth Maselli. I'm the editor for religious studies at Rutgers University Press. Um, in my acquisitions right now, I'm really interested in contemporary Jewish studies, Christianity, Islam, um, new and alternative religious studies. And I'm really excited about books that are shifting paradigms, um, empowering people who aren't always heard in a conversation, and books that are really asking questions of things we've assumed to be true or assumed to be a certain way. Um, I think that's a commitment that's reflected across the Rutgers lists. My colleagues have um, a strong presence in film, sociology, anthropology, and higher ed, and so um, adding religion to those topics is also something that I'm very interested in. Uh, Rutgers University Press publishes about 130 new books every year. Um, these are a mix of um, more academic reference works and then more lay books. We do a few trade books as well. Um, we generally do have an interest in social justice topics sort of across the list and I think uh, when you look at our catalog that's something that's really mirrored there. Um, so today I'm just really excited to get to talk more about the process and open up the black box of publishing that we can make. So. Oh, turn it over. Yeah. So I'm Rebecca Schillerbier. I'm the senior editor who oversees the global religion books list at Routledge. Um, so Routledge is a leading academic publisher across the humanities and social sciences, um, and we're part of Taylor and Francis. So sometimes you see that on signs, sometimes you see Routledge. Um, and um, I work alongside my colleague Joshua Wells, um, and we com commission very broadly um, across all major areas of both religious studies and theology. Um, we, from right from very introductory basic textbooks um, or um, intros to, um, to key topics, right up to cutting edge um, scholarly research volumes. So it's a huge range of types of titles. Um, we consider ourselves to be a very forward-thinking publisher um, and are continuously um, looking for kind of innovative, new, emerging topics, you know, volumes that can be the go-to in those fields, um, and always looking for ideas to inform our publishing. I'm Elaine Maisner, executive editor at UNC Press, and we're a broad-based university press. We publish now about 110 books a year well-known for our uh, expertise in publishing U.S. history and um, a lot of books about social, political, and cultural justice. Um, my bailiwick is religious studies, and also I do Latin American and Caribbean studies, and I also do books about the South for um, general readers. Um, so on any given day, I could be working on a book about how to uh, make cornbread <laughs> to a book about the, the um, practice of uh, devotions at a small church in Brazil. So I love, I love the range. And um, we're part of um, the Association of University Presses, and I'll, I'll talk more about that when I, when I come to that. In, within the religious studies list, we have a very broad-based list in American religion and the religion of the Americas, and also Islamic studies anywhere in the world. Great. Thanks for those introductions. Uh, and now we'll go through the uh, publications process uh, led by uh, each of the panel panelists, starting with uh, Philip. 
So uh, I, I want to start with a little bit of uh, audience participation here. Uh, how many people here have written uh, or have published a book before? Okay. Uh, and of the people who haven't, how many are uh, recent uh, PhD graduates or are currently ABD? Okay. All right. That's good to know who we're talking to. Well, I would say um, that the first step you've already done uh, the best, uh, uh, you've already done uh, the first step in uh, seeking out a publisher, which is coming to this um, panel. So, well done. Congratulations <laughs> to you all. Um, so, uh, the way that I, I like to think about it is that um, finding the right publisher is uh, a lot like matchmaking, you know. Uh, and so I think that the, uh, you know, the panel is very aptly named in that regard. And there are several elements to that matchmaking. Uh, the first is the uh, the match to content of what you're working on, right? So um, whether the publisher specializes or has uh, some kind of competency um, or attention to the field that in which you work, uh, and uh, the other is the personality with the individual editor that you're going to be working with. So it's these two different um, elements of of the right match. The first is, in a certain sense, easier um, because the way that you figure out a match for uh, the content is you just look at your bookshelf, right? Uh, what uh, press has been publishing in the fields that you read? Who has been publishing your interlocutors? Uh, what, what kinds of um, presses are referenced uh, in the citations of the, of the literature that you've been reading? Um, and then once you have, uh, you identify a handful of presses that uh, seem relevant to your work. Um, so for instance, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about us again. So we have a number of different series. We have a series in black religion, womanist theology. Uh, we have a series in uh, new approaches to religion and power. We have approach it, we have um, a series in post-colonialism and uh, religions. We just started a Jewish thought and philosophy series. Um, and so, uh, people who are reading these books are obviously going to be uh, coming across a lot of our titles. Uh, and if you find that you're coming across um, a certain number of titles by the same publishers, those should be the publishers that you seek out. And um, come up with a handful of those, uh, of those presses and um, reach out to them. Um, the best possible uh, way of reaching out, of course, is if you have a conference coming up, see whether you can meet with any of the editors at an upcoming meeting uh, and to discuss your work and what, um, whether it might be a good fit for their list. If you don't have a conference coming up, every editor will be very happy to talk with you over email or, or via phone. Um, and uh, I'll give you a little bit of tips, uh, so a few tips on that opening email. Um, one thing that I think that we all have in common is that we have very robust and full inboxes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I imagine that that's not specific to uh, editorial work, mm -hmm. but um, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of really good literature out there, there's a lot of good stuff being written, and so we get a tremendous amount of, uh, of email uh, correspondence about that work that's going on. And uh, every editor pretty much has to get through that inbox to make sure they're not missing any really good projects, things that would be particularly relevant to them. And so you want your email to be written in a way that is very clear to the editor. 
uh, because I was just thinking about this recently, the amount of time that, uh, that the editor is going to devote to your email at first is probably less than a minute to know whether they want to keep on reading it or not, right? Uh, a few sentences uh, at the beginning are very important toward uh, hooking uh, the editor into knowing what you're actually working on. So, um, uh, in the subject line, you should say book proposal, so that they know that that's what they're um, uh, going to be opening up to read. And in the first few sentences, just introduce yourself, where, what stage you are in, at in your career, uh, and a one to two paragraph description of your project. You know, an elevator pitch, pitch for um, what the purpose of your book is. And it can be at any stage, really. Um, you can say, I'm interested in thinking about uh, this kind of topic, and I'd like to talk to you. If you've also um, already completed a proposal, you can um, attach that in the email as well. And most of the uh, publishers that you'll be looking at have a generic proposal form on their website. So you can go and look into that um, on their websites and try to f uh, complete it. And it's always a good exercise just for uh, being able to articulate what your project is, you know, to go through that proposal form, it can actually help you, um, uh, you know, formulate how you want to present it to an editor. And um, so then the next step after you get in touch um, is, you know, setting up a time to meet either at, at, at a conference or uh, talking over email or over the phone about your project. And get a sense of whether this is a person you would want to work with, you know. Uh, it's a very important uh, stage in your career, it's a very important piece um, of, of your work, and you want to make sure that you're working with someone who you trust, uh, and who you feel as though you have a good positive rapport with. Uh, and so, you know, anybody on, on this panel here, anybody on the floor, there are any number of editors you could be working with. Um, and just like, you know, give yourself um, a feel of uh, what it would be like to work with them. Um, so I think that's also, that's pretty much the, uh, the lay of the land uh, with regard to the pre-submission process. I would also say, I think that uh, there will probably be different kinds of um, standard amounts of material that each uh, publisher will probably be interested in, um, but um, I would say most of the time, most uh, editors will probably like to see some kind of a proposal um, uh, form at the very beginning of the process, uh, and some sample material, maybe a chapter or two of your, uh, of your book project um, that you think is um, pretty much relatively in the form that you conceive of it being for the uh, uh, appearing in the book. So um, I'm sure there will be questions uh, about this part of the process. Uh, happy to answer them uh, later on. Great. Um, so um, I'm going to touch a little bit on, to follow on from Phil, um, about the proposal process. Um, and I'm also going to talk a, a little bit about types of books as well, um, which, which is something obviously that's very important to a proposal. Um, as Phil said, I would say it's never too early to get in touch with a publisher. Um, I'm always very happy to discuss concepts and ideas at an incredibly you know, uh, early stage. Um, it may be that we're, we don't feel we are the right publisher, but it, we can point you in the right direction, or um, you know, it's, it's important for us and you that your book is placed correctly. Um, 
So as I as we've said, don't never be afraid to get in touch at a conference to drop us an email. I, I end up having kind of chats over Twitter quite a lot with people that, especially at early um, early stages, who are just you know have have little queries about you know the process and how how to get in touch. So um, I think I can speak from ev- from everyone when we're really happy to hear from people, you know, and we don't want to be intimidating in any way. You know, we want people to be able to come and talk to us and ask questions um, because uh, you know we rely on that to do the publishing that we do. Um, so at Routledge, um, the first step is very much to get in touch with an email, as Phil said, um, and we always look for a book proposal. Um, now at Routledge, which I think does differ slightly some, from some presses, we will offer contracts based on a book proposal. So I know for some research monographs, um, some publishers can require a full manuscript before a contract is offered. Um, for us, a book proposal... Um, we can do that on a book proposal. Um, the reason that book proposals are so important um, is that we see the review process, which I know Elaine is going to be talking through, um, as really providing us valuable information that will go on to form what that book becomes. Um, you know, and from an early stage, we're going to be making sure that that book is is meeting the readership's needs and, and suitable for the market. So the sooner we can be involved, the, the better, as far as we see it. Um, now, every publisher has their own proposal guidelines. I'm sure they're very similar. Um, you can find them on our website. Um, they, um, we do have different types of proposals, um, depending on the type of book that you're thinking of publishing. Um, but in general, they will include... Um, obviously the title and <laughs> subtitles um, subject particulars so you know what is the book about um, how you intend to structure it um, what your book will offer that others you know <coughs> don't what other competing titles out, are out there um, don't never be afraid to advertise yourself within that proposal um, you know uh, we want to learn about you within that as well um, Crucially, you know, who is the readership in the market? Um, because even um, it may be that the book is being adapted from a PhD or, you know, it's your first book, but you need to really give thought to who's going to be picking up that up, who's going to be reading it, you know, what, what changes may you need to make. Um, always include time scale. We, we know how busy everyone is, so be realistic about when you'd like to work on this project. And then very practical elements. Are you going to include images? You know, um, are there going to be extracts of other text? That kind of thing. For me personally, the most important element of a proposal is, is other than the clear summary of content, um, is the readership in the market. Um, so the review process will in- inevitably give us a good indication of this, but we want to make sure that our, our authors have a good understanding of who they see reading their books. Um, and that touches upon, I won't, I won't go into too, many detail, too much detail about the types of books, um, but, you know, that's, that's crucial when you're putting a proposal together, you know, what, what is this book, who's using it? Um, and one of the most, the questions I get most regularly is, you know, is my book going to be published in paperback straight away? Um, you know... I understand, understandably, that's a question that comes up. And it's important to, 
think about the fact that that is completely based on the market and who you see reading that book. So if you are, um, think obviously for scholarly monographs or some edited collections, based on scholarly research, we very much would see the main market as academic libraries and academics working in a very specific field. And in that instance, that's the books that you see publishing in hardback initially, um, hardback and ebook. Um, however, if there is a market for a book to be used by students or to be recommended, that's when we start looking at the publishing of the paperback. Because that very much um, changes who the market for a, for a book is. So, um, at Rightledge, we have very like a broad range of different types of books. I'm sure the other other publishers we may have different names for them, but they are the different. Um, so we publish um, things like obviously the scholarly monographs. We have what we call our focus books, which are very similar to the Palgrave pivots. Um, so the short, um, somewhere between a journal article and a monograph. Um, hardback research volumes. Um, we have our handbooks. Everyone must have seen the big handbooks that every publisher has, the big edited collections. Um, we also have a range of um, introductory books. So um, I think the best example from Routledge is that they're called the basics. So they are very, um, you know, need no previous knowledge on a subject area, and that would give you an, a quick insight into, into a core topic. And then you have a variety of different types of textbooks, so textbooks for the big 101 courses, right through to textbooks for upper-level um, new and emerging areas of study for students. Um, I mean, this is not an exhaustive list of exhaustive list of types of books. We have a huge range, including, you know, source books, translations, classic texts, but it's just to, get, to give you an idea that there's no one type of book, and you really, when you're putting that proposal together, need to give a lot of thought about who's going to be using it and picking it up. Um, I think, I think, yeah, so as Phil said, once we've got that proposal, um, and we've assessed it, obviously, the next stage would be the review process, which inevitably does give an indication of the market, but I'm sure Elaine will talk you through it. Oh, is that it? Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, so um, UNC Press is a member of American University Presses, which is aupresses.org. That's our professional association. Uh, there's over 140 members worldwide. It used to be called the... Association of American University Presses, but then we expanded and got global. Um, and one of the definitions of uh, a scholarly, there are wonderful scholarly presses that are not part of the AU uh, organization, but um, you're probably familiar with many university presses. So one of the requirements of being in the Association of University Presses is that there is some form of peer review. Um, put forth by, by the presses for any project that they publish. And um, uh, the, the academic publishing is part, I think it'll be good if you have a bigger picture, it's part of a scholarly ecosystem. You know, our mission is to produce and make possible the consumption of knowledge, you know, nothing less than new knowledge that we hope will be consequential <coughs> and move the culture forward. So uh, there are very different ways to do that, from the 
deep monograph uh, to works that we call translational scholarship, where it's written by a wonderful expert who can skillfully write it for a broader audience. Um, we're interested in many, many different types of books, and most presses are. But, um, and they all have to be peer-reviewed. I mean, even that book about making cornbread at UNC Press has to be peer-reviewed. It's a, it's a trick, no. So, uh, but we, we publish books that are um, of many types, and they all have to be peer-reviewed in an appropriate way. It's such a central process. You're, so um, I think everything my colleagues have said so far is really on point to getting to the peer review process. Um, and I think it is good to work with an editor you sense is interested because they should help you get ready for the peer review process. You know, there are many things that an editor can do. If they want to take on your project, they can help you frame it, they can help you think about doing this or that, making sure it's ready. And the most important thing is you need to know what your book is about. You need to know what's new about it and what is important about it. What's your purpose? What are your findings? You know, you can't just say, I explore this or that. I don't like the word explore. <laughs> you need to say, I'm tracing the history of blah, blah, blah from here to here. And then um, through this study, I'm opening, connecting it ideally to big questions that your colleagues are going to be interested in. There's so many types of books with different kinds of audiences, and we're very realistic. You know, if we think there's a work of scholarship that's really important, but we know it's not going to sell more than 300 copies, that's okay if, if it's important. But we have to balance that in the kind of books that we publish, the mix of books. And this is true, I think, for all, all presses. So uh, once your editor feels like, uh, with you, feels like it's ready for going out to experts, um, there are many ways to determine at what stage it should be turned sent out, you know, and sometimes a, um, an editor might receive, I think it's ideal if you've thought through and you have a really clear vision of what your manuscript is and it's done, you know, if you spend some time thinking about it, there are guidelines um, that you can, that um, can help you turn for your, if it's a dissertation to a book, but this is really, I think, oh, could you pass that out? you know, useful to um, anyone writing a second, third book, ways to think about this is how to turn your dissertation into books, some resources for that. So I'm not going to go into that, but you need to know what you've got in your hands. We can also send a proposal out. We can send a proposal and a couple of chapters out if the editor feels like this is, say, a very interesting book that fits their list so beautifully, and we can get reports on that or a full manuscript. In terms of... I think uh, ethics, okay? It's really important that you are open with your editor about whether you're sending this out simultaneously. And ideally, you send out to a handful of your top choices. If you're lucky enough to get two presses seriously interested, then, um, and if a serious, by seriously interested, what I mean is the editor says, I'll send this out for review then you really need to let them know that another editor also has offered to send it out for review. And you need to let them, uh, you know, let them decide if they want to undertake a simultaneous review. Because it takes a, lot of, a huge amount of time and also expense to review something uh, formally. So the editor, in other words, we want to avoid a scenario where the editor goes through the review process and says, oh, it's great, we're going to offer you a contract. And they say, oh, you know what, I've decided to go with this other publisher. And, and we don't 
you know, that's just not ethical. So, but sometimes, the, you know, editors will say, okay, I'm, I'm, I agree to sort of compete. This, the um, whole idea for peer review is that it's constructive. It's going to make your work better. And that's, if it's reached the stage where the editor feels like it's ready to go out for review, then you want, you want to find an editor, to go back to my colleague's comments, um, who is really just about as invested in the work as you are. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good editor, you know, someone who really cares and isn't going to waste time or money sending the, pro the project out for review. It's really important, I think, we, would, we don't want to send out raw dissertations because most of the people who read books have their own graduate students they have to worry about. They don't want to read someone's dissertation. So that's why you need to have a good relationship with your editor to get it to the point where it feels ready, whatever stage that is that the editor is willing to send it out. Um, usually we get, I think most presses get two reviews, at least initially. It's, it's a one-way blind system where the reader knows who you are, but you don't know who the readers are. And um, we want, on the forms you'll fill out, there's a place to put your suggested readers, and we will add that to our pool. Doesn't mean we're going to limit ourselves to those readers, but we definitely want to know who you think would be a good reader, and that also gives us a sense of who you think the readership is. Selecting the readers is a crucial moment. Um, if, if you know there's someone who has a grudge against you for some reason, it's okay to mention that. Doesn't necessarily mean we won't use that reader, but it's very important for us to know because things happen personally and also if someone's just not going to agree with your approach and you know that, that's not very constructive, you know? So it's, it's fine to mention that. I mean, it doesn't happen very often that we hear that, but I just wanted to mention that, I think. Um, so two reviews, if your work is, touches different fields, you know, you definitely want someone in your discipline if you're a historian or religious studies, ethnography, um, textual analysis. You, but, but for example, if I'm doing a book on religion in Brazil, I want someone who knows Brazil as well, or at least Latin America, as well as um, the particular religious tradition or process that we're looking at. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to do this on just two readers. The other thing is that readers aren't always available. So, it, some, and it's getting harder and harder sometimes. The, they're paid honorariums for their work. It's not, it's not a payment. It's more like a gesture, thank you for helping to shape the field of knowledge, our common endeavor. And um, it's good to have a list of five or six people in mind and uh, that you can offer to the editor. Uh, when, the, when the reports come, so the reports are used in preparation to, for at least at our press to take it to, I think most presses to take a project. After the board, of, uh, the review process, we take it to our board for final approval, okay? And our board, our culture is that we want the manuscripts to be pretty much any major problems have been worked out. Sometimes it can take even two rounds of reviews to get to that stage before the editor feels safe bringing it to our board because we don't want to take it to the board and have it get turned down at the board stage. They meet every two months at our press. Very rare that anything like that happens because the editors, you know, we're so, we're so um, aware of what our board is looking for that we work toward that goal with you. So getting the reports back is, you know, it's such a 
It's a mighty moment, and you need to see them constructively. I hope you have an editor who works with you constructively. There's a real range of reports. Ideally, the editor knows that if they send this manuscript out, it's, it's worthy of, of publication, but there are times when you get very you get very negative reports, you know, and they say, I don't see how this can be improved. I don't see how this can be ready for publication. So my word there is persist, don't give up. It's individualistic, these reports, to some degree. But an editor may not be able to proceed further if you get reports like that. More often, it's a very um, constructive report, so this is wonderful, hasn't thought this through yet. If you get a, a comment like, the evidence doesn't support the argument, that's serious, but it doesn't mean you have to stop it. It means they usually give you ways to um, look further and help you work that out. I think it's really good to be willing to dismantle parts of the manuscript or the whole manuscript and, and rethink it if you have promising reports but it's not there yet. I go through every report with my, with my authors point by point and I make sure they respond. Even, and on the other hand, this is not their, I mean, this is their book. It's not the reader's <coughs> book. So we're not, the reports are not the end all and be all of the system, of the process. We want to know how you can, even if you don't agree, how can you use that response to better the book? There's always a way. Um, and and uh, if someone sees a fault in it, it's likely that another reader, after it's published, will see the same fault. So you think of it as, you know, I mean, these are friends, even though it's hard. This is helpful, even though if they're being snide. This is something that you need to use to incorporate into your thinking and then into the book itself. So that's kind of the way we think about it. It can be very rigorous, and, and uh, that means that once it gets published, your colleagues know that this book has been through a really rigorous process. Um, you know, each press uses the reports in different ways, I think, in terms of the board approval or what, whatever process they have to make that final decision. Um, and sometimes their reports are very promising, and then you say, let's do an advanced contract as long as we see by your written response that you're going to take care of all these issues. Then we send it back to what, either one or two readers, depending on the types of the reports. And hopefully by that stage they'll say, this was really well done, it's ready, you know, ready to be published, whatever. Sometimes if it's in a series and there are series editors, the series editors can also comment on the review process and uh, help a board understand that even if there was a critique, you know, that, you've, that the author has actually overcome that problem or has dealt with it appropriately. And um, so series editors can and should be allies, I think, for a positive review process. Okay, I think that's it for now. Okay, fantastic. Then sort of picking up in the process, I'm going to speak about book contracts and I'll touch a little bit on book formats. Um, so at this point, you have gone through this process of pre-submission, submission, peer review successfully. You've responded to the peer reports and your editor says that they can move forward. Um, so you've made this match, you're working together exclusively to put this book out. Um, so what's next, what's at this stage? Ideally, um, a book contract. So um, like Elaine was saying, there are different ways of getting that contract. Often an editor will go to some sort of review meeting if that's external stakeholders or internal decision makers. It's a little bit different everywhere. But once that meeting is tackled, often that's where the contract is issued. So congratulations. It's exciting to have a book contract, but I understand that it can be really intimidating. Um, you want your book published, 
And I think there's a very understandable tendency to take a contract, skim it, and then just sign it um, in the same way that you would agree to Apple Terms of Service. Um, <laughs> but fortunately, by comparison, book contracts are pretty straight, or very straightforward. Um, the purpose of this contract is to set terms and clauses for the practical pieces of moving manuscript files into a physical bound item for sale. So in my talk today, I want to identify a few fairly common elements to contracts that you might see when reading through the text of one for the first time, um, things that can help you to navigate the text, make decisions, and raise questions or identify pain points um, at this early stage. So some common contract elements are the grant of rights. Uh, literally, what is the title of the book? And you, the author, grants me, the publisher, the exclusive right to print, package, distribute, and sell this um, thing that you've created. This grant usually includes a range of formats, so that will talk about the cloth, paper, and ebook, in addition to formats like first and second serial rights, um, excerpts before and after publication, um, audio, television, dramatic rights, and foreign translation rights. After the grant of rights, um, there's going to be some measure of production specs. So what is a word count, right? Um, what is the image and table threshold? The editor at this point probably has some kind of forecast built, so some budget or profit and loss statement, there's a few different terms for it, but something that's used the word count that you've posited as the point to think about the audience, so, and the price around the book. So now is the time to ask for another 5,000 words if you're going to need that to respond to your reviewers. It's a time to ask for a, the additional five tables that you've realized you need to add to what you've got. Um, and that way the contract can be written with those specs in mind. Um, the editor at this stage can still work on the budget and move on these if they can. Um, the fear there is that if books come in over in these regards, that's going to impact the book's budget and the schedule. Um, if a book needs more production work than anticipated, then it follows that it would take longer to print, produce, bind, and that um, can be very disruptive for the publisher and for the author. Um, in production specs in the contract, there's also likely to be language about a copy editing review and timeline and um, review of typeset page proofs. So those will usually have deadlines in them, maybe two weeks to review your copy edits and three weeks to review the typesets. These are fake numbers. Everybody will have different numbers of weeks. Um, but that is done with keeping an eye on schedule and prepping you to think about the next stages in the book's life. Um, indexing would be often, I would think of as a production spec, depending on the publisher, you may be asked to cover the cost of the index. Um, marketing specs bleed into production elements, so things like cover design, cover copy, um, publicity, language about these items will be in the contract. The marketing of a press um, will launch a campaign for the book because they work directly with book buyers around the world. They are going to need that final say on design, promotional copy. Um, but usually these do have some input from the author. And I'll talk a little bit about that when I talk about things that aren't explicitly in the contract. Um, administrative clauses are pretty important. This covers intellectual property, royalty structure, intellectual property, copyright. Um, this is often pulled out into a clause. It can be in the author's name. It can be in the name of 
the publisher. Um, in our case, we would copyright a single author book in the name of the author and then an edited collection in the name of Rutgers the State University because in that formulation, individual contributors can then choose to register their claims to their work in their name if they want to. Um, royalties are going to follow, well, it's a few different ways that royalties are presented. Some publishers will pay a lump sum, others have a tiered structure based on the format. So a tiered structure might look like X percent of net receipts on the hardback, X percent on paperback, and X percent on the ebook. Um, subsidiary rights, uh, royalty splits are covered in there. Those tend to be more formulated much differently. They can be things like 50 50, um, 65 45 on those specific grants of audio rights, translation rights, and other subsidiary elements. Um, gratis copies, so any free copies that you are receiving how many in different formats that will be covered in this area, um, and your discount on additional copies beyond the number of free copies you're given. Um, if you're working with an agent, they will likely insert a clause somewhere in the contract towards the end that specifies their commission on uh, net receipts of the book and also specifies the gratis copies that they need. Um, so those are common clauses. I'm speaking at a pretty vague level because everyone's legalese is a little bit different. Um, different legal bodies review, create, and approve these contracts and different publishers have different house styles. Um, and I think legal language can be daunting if you're not working with contracts all the time. Um, I think as you're working on the contract and reading it, keep in mind that the ultimate purpose is that these are the clauses that are needed to turn the manuscript into an object and to get that into the market. Um, if you have questions about the contract, ask your editor. If you have pain points, you can raise them now. Editors may, may not be able to move on everything, so royalties you might not be able to move on, but they probably can do something for extra images or tables. Um, they can interpret clauses where you have questions and generally assist. Um, when authors receive conflicting advice, there's a risk for confusion. So I think there's can be a tendency to want to compare a contract to a peer's or to ask mentors for information. And I think what's safer is to ask your peers and networks what their experiences have been like, what sort of seems common to them. But keep in mind that every book has a different audience and a different set of specs. So a book published 11 years ago before the financial crisis, e-readers, and um, the end of library acquisition budgets, um, that is going to just be a different expectation for sales and for contracts. And books published now, um, the specs of, say, an edited collection versus a monograph, those can look different. And so while it's good to be aware of these concepts, your editor is the person who can actually move towards solving your pain points, who can actually negotiate and move things um, in a way that works for the book's audience, market, and for you. So there are several things that aren't going to be defined in a contract typically, or may or may not be. Uh, for example, is it, an, is it an advance or a full contract? Um, that is often not spelled out in the agreement. Um, if you have an advance contract for your partial submission or for a strong manuscript that still needs a final round of revisions and um, peer review, you can often sign that contract, and that contract is the only contract you'll sign. There won't be another full contract issued to you at a later date. It'll just be understood that the publisher has accepted it for, for publication, and it's moved now from advanced to full. Um, 
the price is something that can't be in a contract because the markets are changing and it needs to reflect the needs of the audience when the book comes out in press. Um, usually for us, a book publication timeline from final submission to publication date is about 10 to 12 months and so things fluctuate um, and it just can't be known in advance. Um, formats of the book may or may not be in the contract. Some contracts will say this will publish in paper, cloth, and e simultaneously. Others will be silent on it and that tends to be a house style, I would say. Um, like Rebecca was saying, there's a lot of thinking about your audience, and at this point, you would have been in conversation with your editor. You can definitely ask, what formats are you thinking? How do you envision this um, book coming together? Um, there is, of course, the cloth and ebook plan. Um, there's also simultaneous cloth paperback and electronic publication plans. These tend to be more for sales for books with you know a high adoption market. Mm. And there's myriad reasons for publishing a book in one way or another. Um, um, it's just yes, worth saying please, with yeah. that, Yen. Um, our contracts will always include hard, hardback, paperback, and ebook. Because mm -hmm. even if we are publishing initially in hardback and ebook, we nearly always publish a paperback, uh, usually around 18 months to two years down the line. Mm -hmm. So that contract will cover everything. Um, it's also worth saying that for us, there's no um, kind of advance or not. If you've got a contract, you've got a contract with us. Yeah, so these sort of have styles, differences in um, yeah. this process. Um, and then the ebook is a format that I think gets a little bit neglected, but it's worth thinking about off the top because that, at least for us, that is a sector that is growing. It's really quite exciting. Um, ebooks will be, they're pretty much guaranteed. Um, ebooks are often made in the production process, and so we, you know, have it. It's very, very standard at this time. Um, and publishers work with a range of different clients, so some publishers host their own ebooks and sell directly. Um, they can also simultaneously sell via Amazon and other point of sale places and partner with groups or companies like EBSCO or ProQuest or nonprofits like JSTOR and Muse to license content to academic libraries. And we see a very high um, library interest in ebook collections more so than um, cloth formats. So when you're looking into your publisher and see who they partner with, um, it's nice to look at that kind of at this stage and anticipate the different platforms that your ebook um, will be on. If there's a platform that you know is important <laughs> to you, you can see if the publisher is working with them now and see if that's a partnership that might be established at some point. That is my summary, I think, of <laughs> the common things in contracts. I'm happy to take, of course, any questions about it, but I think. At this stage, I will turn it back over to Vincent. So, Wonderful. Thank you. thank you so much. It's been really helpful to hear similarities <coughs> and, and some distinctions between uh, for uh, uh, publishers. I, if I could just add very briefly, as uh, the editor of the book series, I, I think series have sort of been alluded to uh, a little bit, and each publisher thinks of book series in, in different ways. Uh, the American Academy of Religion uh, has five or so uh, book series that it it, uh, it uh, works in relationship with Oxford University Press to publish uh, because AR thinks uh, there are particular areas that they would like to uh, see scholarship in religion advanced and would be a benefit to the field as a whole uh, if there was particular emphasis on these 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 fields and so uh, the series that uh, I edited is on sort of second order questions in the study of religion around theories and methods um, uh, and um, some sort of new approaches 
Uh, it's called Reflection Theory in the Study of Religion. Uh, but one of the, the benefits to, to, the, to both the AR series and uh, I think book series more generally is that uh, series editors tend to be colleagues, right? So I'm, I'm a, an expert in uh, uh, theories and methods in the study of religion. I teach courses on this all the time. I'm uh, a faculty member at, a, at an institution uh, like uh, many authors. And, and so, I mean, uh, uh, and I also um, don't do this all day. I don't have an e- email box full of uh, book proposals. Uh, in fact, I think all of the AR series wish we were getting more proposals. Um, so I mean, we can have a, a, a different sort of relationship, and I, I, can, I have a different sort of uh, quantity of time that I can spend working and engaging with, with authors. Um, uh, of course, everything has to ultimately go through Oxford University Press uh, in the series, uh, and uh, the books are treated just like any other Oxford Uni- University Press book in terms of the peer review process, in terms of the production and, and marketing. Um, but in this series in particular, we get, and in any series, you get the added benefit of being associated with a family of books, right, that have things in common, uh, and uh, in this case, that, that have the American Academy of Religion imprimatur and, and sort of marketing uh, capacity uh, behind them. Um, but uh, uh, just very briefly, before opening uh, to, I'm sure, the many questions in the audience, I wonder if I could each uh, ask each panelist if you could share two tips, a, a do and a don't, <laughs> that you like to see from uh, prospective authors or in working working with authors. Um. Um, I, for, for me, um, a do is, um, what, is keep in touch with your editor um, because for us, you know, even if it's because there's a delay or, or, or there's an issue, we, we want to know what's going on, we want to have regular contact, it's important for us. Um, you know, we're not going to tell anyone off. We realise everyone's got lives and things happen. Um, so just keep us. So do definitely keep in touch. Like that, we want regular contact with our authors, um, and you know, and understand. I would say do understand that. You know, it's in both of our interests for your books to be a success. So we want to do everything we can um, to make the processes um, simple and easy, and um, you know, and build a good rapport with our authors. So, you know, we see it very much as obviously we're working together. So just keeping regular touch, I would say, they're my tips. Um, I, I agree with, the, with that uh, wholeheartedly. Um, <laughs> and uh, if I didn't have to come up with a different one. Got in there first. Dues, uh, this is one uh, do that uh, I was just thinking about. It, a lot of proposal forms will uh, ask for comparable titles. Um, of, uh, for your project. Uh, this is requesting titles that are within the same um, discourse uh, that have been published, preferably in the not-too-distant past. Uh, this portion of the proposal form uh, for, most, for most presses um, is, I think, often misunderstood. It's often uh, assumed by uh, the author that uh, if there's too much competition, then a publisher will not really be interested in publishing that um, book, which is not the case at all. The purpose of that section is to show, demonstrate that you are aware of the state of the discourse of your field and that you know who your interlocutors are um, and uh, the the nature of the conversation that's occurring within your field. Uh, And so really a tell for any uh, editor reading a proposal if somebody, if somebody either leaves that part blank or states uh, titles that 
to our minds uh, are uh, way outside of the discourse uh, that we imagine your book being. It's, uh, it's an indication of where the author is situated uh, within, in relation to that discourse. So do certainly think about um, who, who you're uh, really engaging with, which thinkers you're really engaging with um, when you're pr producing that part of it. Uh, and don't, uh, in terms of don't, uh, I really, uh, this kind of dovetails off, but really don't be shy. Mm -hmm. um, everybody wants to talk. We, uh, we all went into this, I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody, but everybody went into this because they're interested in the field and they want to have conversations about the work that you're doing. Um, and so uh, don't be shy about talking to them about it. Um, and because those conversations will only benefit uh, the book in the long run. I have two do's and one don't. <laughs> Sorry. Well, one is um, uh, know that the editor you're dealing with is assessing your project in the context of a huge number of projects, and and uh, depending on the if they do send it out for review, if it's sort of a mixed review, sometimes there are other projects that have to fill that slot and that can fill that slot at the moment. So there's a, there's kind of a lot of decision making going on by the editor and and her peers, her her team about which, which manuscripts to accept. And um, so there, there's a whole layer of decision making that goes on. So if, if in the end your project is declined, you know, don't get up and send it out again. Make sure you try to improve it, you know, if you've got peer reviews. But uh, a lot of the times the decision to decline is, is, is even after a review goes through, uh, especially if it's a mixed review. Um, don't don't just don't be depressed. Don't stop. Get it back out, okay? Because there are other publishers who are looking for just that kind of work. Also, pre presses change their programs every once in a while. So, don't just don't have a stereotypical idea of what a press does. Mm -hmm. You know, they're always developing new areas and new editors. So, try to try to stay on top of that. Um, do develop your platform. That means get out there and market your book once it's out. You're the best marketer for your book. Your press ideally should be helping you and doing all the right things and expected things but you you know if you're not on Twitter there are some fantastic scholarly communities around Twitter that uh, in religious studies and um, get out there and and you know make it make it known that your book give talks uh, tell your friends uh, try to participate once the book comes out don't just sigh and go to bed okay <laughs> the other thing the don't would be don't be rude I mean I'm sure no one in this room would be rude but you'd be amazed uh, at people who are working very hard to try and get everything exactly right and then um, no, you know no appreciation is shown um, in a way that is not going to endear you to anyone at the publisher um, that doesn't mean you don't go for what you need and want at all. It's just that be appreciative too. I would say this is sort of a proposal tip. Um, do name some titles on the publisher's list that you're excited about, that you're in conversation with. It's helpful for us to know that you've looked at the list, that you do see yourself in conversation here, and um, that is just a nice tool for making your cases to your match. Um, and don't go over your word count, um, yeah. <laughs> because that is something that will have uh, downstream yes. implications and is, if anything, maybe suggest more words if you have to, but by the time you're revising this book, you give your most honest 
um, estimate and be able to cut words um, rather than going over. Wonderful, thanks. It's uh, lots of helpful advice, and we have plenty of time for questions. Yeah. In addition to the sheet that was just passed out with Beth's resources for publishing one's dissertation, even though I imagine there is a lot out there in front about how to publish in general, can you recommend any one source that would summarize and encapsulate what you folks have said on this panel? Whether it's a book, whether it's a website, whether it's a whatever. Um, I'm not sure how up to date that list is, but the book by um, no, I can't remember. Uh, there are some really great books that encapsulate all of this. Yes. I, yeah, I, 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 yeah. There's one, one called Inside Book Publishing. Yeah. That I think um, I there's one called Inside Book Publishing. Um, Inside I think the author's completely gone out of my yeah. my head. Um, Obviously, we have a lot of our own guidelines specifically for us, like Inside on our website. Yeah. Yeah, the recommendation would be a, from dissertation to book by Bill Germano. I feel like the University of Chicago oh, Press should start paying yeah. me royalties for <laughs> yeah. It's a great read. Yeah. It talks about audience, it talks about fits, and it also talks about the nuts right. and bolts of pulling out right. a lit review and really foregrounding your own voice in your research. Yeah, great. that's you, the one. Do me a favor so I don't take would you please just write down the short title, and I can look it up from there. Sure. Yep, I can hand that to you after. It yeah, it's a book by Bill Germano. Oh, it's on the list. Fantastic. From dissertation to book. Oh, okay. That's yep. the one. All good. Inside publishing. Anybody else? Talk to editors. Okay. Thank you. That's yeah, all I, I want to know. I think generally, I, most of us probably recommend the from dissertation to book yeah. on a regular basis. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Inside book publishing, Angus Brooks. Yes, it might be. Because, uh, yeah, he runs the other uh, masters in, in book publishing. Great. There's a question over here. Yeah, um, I know it's common at my institution, at many institutions, for dissertations to need to be submitted to ProQuest or some kind of online database mm -hmm. uh, uh, like this. Can you talk about Erdl's advice about how to handle that process so that it doesn't tank the books, uh, appeal to, to publish? Yeah. I think that's a great, um, it's very common, and I think that kind of repository is not so much of a hurdle because your final manuscript is going to be very different. You're going to be writing for a broader audience. At this point, you're revising the dissertation so much that while maybe the research is there, you're the authority answering your questions in a way that is not considering your committee, it's not considering these dissertation elements, so usually we're not too concerned about that. Um, what is more anxiety provoking for me is when people publish articles in journals throughout, um, because that can risk taking the core insights, the core knowledge you've produced in your book, and putting that into a journal format can then dilute the book's impact. So I think in general the dissertation piece is pretty expected, but be cognizant of what your journal audience is versus your book audience. Yeah. yeah, we um, we used to when they first started uh, warehousing the, the dissertations and ProQuest, we wondered what the impact would be, but now we're not really worried about it at all. Um, you should, I think, request the longest embargo they allow, which might be five years. But other than that, it has not been 
an issue. Um, but exactly, as, as you said, uh, you know, we don't want to publish raw dissertations. We want no. to publish things that have been thoroughly enlarged, revised, and will make a different kind of impact. And I also will tell my authors not to put the word uh, dissertation in their acknowledgments. Like, I want to thank my dissertation mm -hmm. uh, advisors. Practical reason, actually, there are library collection um, librarians who, if they look at the acknowledgments, they see the word dissertation, they may not order it for their library. Uh, but And we're not trying to hide that it was based on dissertation. They thank my mentors, thank my teachers, you know, that's fine. But um, also, psychologically, this is not, you know, you are now moving into the world of your peers. You are no longer a graduate student. You shouldn't think of the project as a dissertation anymore. So. Can I just ask uh, if you all have thoughts on changing the title? I, I, sometimes I hear advice that the all title right. should not be the same. It's never the same. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I don't know if an instant, usually it's changed. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, yes, in the front. Uh, so uh, I, my dissertation, uh, I decided not to pursue publishing it. Mm -hmm. uh, teaching and continued research have kind of went in a different direction. So there's kind of a gap there between dissertation and then what I'm putting together as a book proposal. Is that something that could be considered a impediment? Not uh, at all. No. There are a lot of dissertations that should never get published. <laughs> and you would be do well to start developing a new book idea if, if it no longer interests you, you know. You're yeah, not all books need to be based on a dissertation. I, just, I didn't know if there was some uh, advantage from a publisher's perspective. Okay, this person's dissertation was really hot, and now they're publishing something else, and that's great. Or this person's dissertation was kind of... Yeah, uh, all of that, all of that's possible. There's yeah. no one way. Yeah. yeah. All right, that helps. Thanks. The second room? Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on the journal articles and how to address that in a perspective, if to address that in a perspective, if we have a couple of pieces at the journal. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's a great place to identify that. Um, usually, I think for me, like if I see two journal articles, that's the max that I would um, expect to see. Um, to know where they're published, that can be very helpful. I think in the proposal is a great time to also explain how they differ from the focus of your research. So you could say, this is drawn from the same body of research but answers these questions. The book itself matters because it's addressing these separate questions. Um, yeah, I think that's where I would talk about that. Can I just ask one quick follow-up? Um, would you suggest the author getting the permissions before the submission of the manuscript? So is this for, like, you're including journal articles within your manuscript, so they're chapters that previously been published? Yeah. Um, it's something we actually advise against the republishing of the of if it's already been published elsewhere in, in, in the manuscript purely because obviously that content is out there and it's accessible and in a way you're kind of selling it again if that makes sense not to say that it doesn't happen of uh, cases but really because we want that book to be a coherent whole is thinking about what can you add to that you know how can you develop that so that, so that the book is um, but it's always good if you have got permission to make a note of that because we need to be aware I personally um, like to see that there's an article or two um, that's already been published that 
uh, is incorporated in the manuscript because it demonstrates that the, uh, the some of the ideas in the book have already started getting some kind of traction. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think most publishers will have this. But but there is a policy of the limit to uh, the, the amount of previously published material. Um, so uh, for us, it would be about 25% of the cumulative manuscript. Uh, but if it's anywhere below that, I don't ever say boo. Like I don't, I don't have any concerns about it. If it's more than that, then um, uh, then you will have a conversation about how maybe to bring the percentage down, or whether it's whether the um, the concept of the book has to be um, re-theorized, you know, and um, uh, rethought. But um, the uh, uh, in terms of your question about getting the permissions before, uh, I generally um, suggest that you don't go to the trouble of getting the permissions until you have a, a until you have a contract. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, a few things that you should also keep in mind while you're doing all of this is that um, there are certain publishers uh, that uh, have become kind of strict about their permissions of, of previously published materials, particularly when it comes to electronic use. Mm -hmm. So um, there are some different policies out there with regard to um, granting permission to um, like for instance, we have a, uh, on our platform, we allow chapter-by-chapter uh, -chapter downloads. And there are uh, some concerns that certain publishers will not grant um, permission uh, for uh, publishers that use that kind of model. Um, I think because the, obviously it, uh, it duplicates the, the work in, in, in a much more accessible way. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're considering which journals to publish with. Um, and uh, I'm sure there was something else that I was going to say with regard to this as well. Um, but I don't remember what it was. So that's that. Great. Yeah, just a quick question about handy terms and words to use when you're designating an audience. Um, I mean, I think of scholarly and general. Peers and cross, but what are the terms that are used these days that you're looking for when someone's describing the audience and um, Definitely an indication of within um, the subject areas where it is of use. So the readership, you know, if there's like interdisciplinary appeal between different fields, so talk of that. For us, if there's any potential students, is a big one to mention. If there is any use for courses, it do, that doesn't have to be, you know, adopt, an adopted textbook. But if there is going to be interest, you know, it might be on a further reading list or re referred to, or, um, or articles from it, or contributions from it might be. Um, so definitely, I mean, it's really, it's really difficult to, you know, general readership is so big. You know, it's very rare that a book is going to have academic appeal, appeal and a general appeal. So um, you need to be real, really realistic about who, who you see picking up and, and, and so using it. you say general, it should be much more specific. Yeah, it's trying to be specific about who you see reading it. Because sometimes when we see general, we think more on the trade side of it. So a, a non-academic reader with just a general interest. Um, and as academic publishers, I know some, some publishers do some, do some trade titles, but for us at Rightledge, our focus is that academic. So um, we, it's just really important to try and be as precise as you can be. It, it often is with the review process that, you know, the market might change. We might be aware of a slightly different market or 
but it's really it's really important for us to see who the author sees picking up and in, in using their book. Yeah, the the, um, the print run and the title budget are all always thought about. Um, but most publishers uh, have, because our mission is to publish groundbreaking scholarship um, in fields that we're invested in, if there's a wonderful book that we know will probably only pub, you know, sell five or 600 copies in its lifetime, we, we have... Um, with our eyes open, we will take that on. But each kind of book has its own, uh, yes, we consider it in, within its own um, sphere. You know what I mean? There's no, you can't generalize about it, but that we do consider how many books we want to publish in which area, how many copies we think they'll sell, you know, and how we can make it all balance out correctly. I can't, I can't generalize about that. There, there, every type of book will have different expectations. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's why we have different publishing models. There's right. no one model that fits all, you know, all of the web. Every single book, we're thinking about that book. You know, yeah. what, are we, right. what are our expectations right. from that individual project? Right. Um, it may have similarities to, be, to others, but, you know, it, there is definitely no model that kind of fits. I mean, the more narrow a book is, usually the smaller the audience is, and, and um, you know, we always have to keep those kinds of things yeah. in mind and balancing the list to be able to continue publishing books. But it's really important for authors' to expectations to match, you know, to understand, to talk with your editor and your publisher about what the expectations are. You know, if you're publishing a, um, a monograph on... Uh, Let's see. Uh, a certain kind of, say, black evangelical um, uh, developments right after the Civil War, and uh, just for example, how many, how, how many know who your audience is? Who's going to be interested in that book? And, and also, publishers are much more interested in books again that you you may be focused as you are in a dissertation on some you know wonderful original research, but do be aware of, of engaging the bigger questions and theoretical considerations that are current in that field and, and expand your book to be bold in that regard. And then it'll probably sell to more people. Yeah. And your, your editors and publishers know when, you know, they, they know how to look for that kind of thing. That's what they'll be looking for. Russell? Yeah, uh, you mentioned groundbreaking scholarship. Uh, when, when people describe their uh, their projects or their significance to you in, in emails, should they err on the side of humility or bravado? <laughs> That's such a great question. Yeah, don't don't be humble. This yeah. is your moment. This is you're the author and you have the authority. I think you lean into that, especially um, 
yeah, with the credentials you've earned in the PhD. Um, mm -hmm. And the more hyped you are about the book, the more the authors or the editor is going to pick up on that and be able to convey that internally. So, I, I have two uh, things to say. One, also the previous question as well. We'll go to that afterwards. Uh, the bravado, I think, is fine. I agree, but uh, but to a point, um, you know, there's like you know. Uh, the next Harry Potter, maybe. That, exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, um, when you, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, Right, there's a level that's ridiculous, yeah, be, but, um, be conscious of the solipsism, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, of how, how, lo how large the, um, the, di the, uh, audience for, uh, academic monographs tend to be. So, um, it'll, it'll, you know, the next Harry Potter is something of a red flag, you know, when when you, when you read something like that on a uh, on a proposal, but uh, but certainly don't be too um, too humble. Um, with regard to the question on threshold of sales, um, I think we might have a slightly different answer than uh, other presses do, because of the um, because the business model is so heavily focused on digital package sales. Uh, the pressure on each individual title to sell a certain number of copies is a lot less than it used to be. And so for us, as long as the book and the title adds value to the package, in a content sense, uh, it, adds, uh, it adds a certain dimension uh, of you know, disciplinary um, coverage to the package, then it will s still be of value to the press. And so, the question of whether it will sell 200, 300, 400 copies uh, is not quite as important as um, as whether it's a valuable, high-quality piece of um, scholarship. And this, I think, is a very significant uh, shift in the publishing industry. It used to be that everybody in this room, if they were producing a proposal, they would be asked to make it as general as possible. Um, used to be the case because it would need to appeal to as broad an audience of, of researchers as it, as it could. Uh, and I don't think it's as much the case now because of this kind of uh, modeling. So it allows your, your, um, your work to you know, live and exist in the way that it was initially intended. Now, that's not to say that if it's not of interest, that, if it's, that it could be of interest to uh, other disciplines and to a broader audience than you, than you imagined say when you were writing your dissertation, you should certainly expand in that direction. It's not to say that it's bad, but um, it's, uh, it's not as much of a feature of a, uh, of a proposal as it used to be. Oh, yes, Will. When speaking about fields and locating your research, I was hoping you might have some advice for people with interdisciplinary projects, with interlocutors in diverse fields, methodologies and objects I was just talking. I have an answer to that, but I was just <laughs> talking, so I want to let other um, people. I'd say, I mean, we're always very um, keen to hear about interdisciplinary um, areas. I mean, I think, in general, religious studies, you know, it is very interdisciplinary, so it's the nature of the subject area. Um, and being the publisher of the, of the size, I mean, I think similar to Paul Grove, where we're, we're publishing across such a range of topics, we see it as an advantage to have those interdisciplinary projects where 
we can make sure that we are using those contacts that we have and marketing in different fields. So it's important to say books that sit with me within religion, we're not ignoring where else they may appeal and where else, um, you know, where we should be sending them. And, um, but it is sometimes, it's the, the question is, well, where does it sit, you know? So who do I approach initially? And, and they'll say, well, it's not mine. And then the next editor will say, well, it doesn't sit with me. Um, but actually, often there, there is there is a natural place, and editors will within a company talk with each other, see where it fits with what else we publish, um, and and kind of work together. So it's not kind of we're not we are very much working as a whole um, to make sure that those projects reach the different fields. Um, so I don't want anyone to think it's a disadvantage if their projects are interdisciplinary in nature. Yeah, I feel the same way. We we approach it the same way. Um, uh, you know, sometimes you, it can, it does need a place to sit, yeah. a home, and often we'll go by who, um, what you're you were trained in, mm -hmm. uh, and who you hang out with. You know, that tells us a little bit about where it should sit. But we like books that will appeal to say people interested in Brazilian studies and religious studies. And, and also the editors contribute to each other's lists in, um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, you want to go with a publisher who's going to recognize that and get the word out to the various audiences that, you, that your book needs to go to. And sometimes that decision will also be made on the review process because um, we'll try and get scholars from the different fields obviously to review and then sometimes that will give an indication in their feedback oh actually you know naturally we think yeah, um, the yeah. readership will be great in this field yeah. therefore we want to yeah. make sure it's sat on that list yeah. well, it's really your responsibility to think through what you mean by interdisciplinary you know you can't just say oh this is an interdisciplinary work what does that mean you know as I say because most titles have some interdisciplinary yeah. Yeah. feel Depends a lot on the list. I think what we've been saying about talking, looking at your bookshelf and seeing what's there. If you are doing art books, there's art publishers who will be doing that. And if so, say you're an art historian and you want heavy stock paper and really like full bleeds of your art, there are specific publishers who do that, and that is a smaller group. So a book, like if I were to get a proposal for an exhibit catalog or something, I would send it to someone who does art history professionally because they have the production team and investment to support that kind of project. Um, for black and white images in a monograph, that tends to be um, not as beautiful, but just as useful in a research monograph. And that is more within our wheelhouse to include. But even with that, like I know we do not do many books with inserted galleries. Um, it's just not really in our wheelhouse. Um, so. I think I say all that to say, look at your shelf and see who's publishing the books that you're drawn to, that you would like to emulate. We, we think of visual evidence as evidence, and um, it, you don't want pictures just because you happen to have a couple of pictures and be nice. They should work for your argument, ideally, you know. Uh, I'm not being, I don't want to be too strict about mm -hmm. it, but they, they, they do cost, and they take up paper, so they do add to the overall cost. and. Do not underestimate the time it's going to take you to get the right re, uh, reproduction quality scan and permission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So some books are, like we're doing a material religion um, book about um, Jewish crafting. It's gonna be, obviously, you need pictures, you know. Um, so we allowed, I guess, 30, 30 black and white pictures for that book. If a book is, you know, visual evidence isn't really so crucial, maybe five black and white, maybe one per chapter just to sort of open the chapter and set the scene, or maybe it doesn't need any pictures at all. So it's kind of book by book. But if it really is a heavily illustrated book that needs um, a lot of mm, illustrations, there might be a need for a subvention to help with that, depending, especially color illustrations, right? Can you all say more about subventions? I, uh, sometimes there are questions about whether you should say you have subvention available when you approach an editor or if you should wait for the editor to ask. Or... I'm, I, I, I'm always like, I would like to hear. I'm usually told more than I would ask, if that, if that makes sense. I find most of my authors will tell me if there's a potential for a subvention at quite an early stage. Um, yeah, we can support grant proposals yeah. and if there's internal yeah. applications. Um, it depends on the context, of course, but um, do let people know because that is, yeah. I mean, it's going to impact the book at some point anyway. It's not going, but nobody is making the decision to publish based on a subvention. That's so the key. it's not yeah. hurting yeah. you to. Could you find the term subvention, please? Money awarded from maybe your department or institution or a granting body to support publication of a book. So it could be used for, say, an index. A cover image, Index, color image, image, you know, permissions, permissions. Um, third-party permissions to republish. Uh, open access, production. Is another one. Yeah, this is probably a good time to talk about open, open access, access a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, subventions. The amount that people usually will have for a subvention doesn't usually support open access, but mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are different version. There are different versions of subvention funding. Some that will um, go toward the, the purchase of permissions. Some that will go toward. Um, the actual cost of the production of the book. Some uh, intended to buy a certain number of books post-publication. Mm -hmm. uh, I think anybody is willing to have that information up front, um, uh, but just with the recognition that the book will be evaluated on the same standards uh, regardless of whether a subvention is available or not. So uh, you can mention it from the beginning that you have the funding available but it'll still have to go through the same rigorous peer review process. And the conversation about that kind of payment will only happen after that peer review process is complete, you know, in order to um, s just support and honor the integrity of the review process as well. Open access is something that I'm sure a number of us have been um, uh, moving toward. <clears throat> uh, the idea about open access essentially is that it allows your, um, your work to be available freely uh, through online platforms, and it's based on a certain amount of funding that um, uh, will probably depend on uh, uh, which press you go with, what, they're, what they request for making the book, book open access, um, or even potentially a chapter of the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the idea of the cost is really um, to just to uh, compensate for the lack of sales that the publisher um, will have from not selling your book. Usually the open access books will be available for free online and they'll also print a number uh, that will be available to purchase at a, at a usually a, a, a low price. 
um, but it's just to cover the cost of the production. Open access very rarely covers the cost of a production of physical books. And the cost for a general size monograph, say at Palgrave, is um, $17,000. And the amount uh, for an individual chapter or, say, a journal article is closer to $2,500. Uh, there are various funding bodies that are very interested in providing um, funding like this, uh, particularly uh, in Europe if you have access to European funding bodies. Um, there are also movements by some funding bodies to make all of the research that they, uh, that they uh, support to be uh, open access. Uh, and so you should look into it um, if you are through your department or through various foundations that are related to the work that you do to see whether there is any kind of funding available. Yeah, that's a good topic. I mean, there's there are experiments going on at various publishers. I think it's much more uh, common in Europe and and, and uh, the UK. A lot of movement for, you know, knowledge wants to be free, mm -hmm. and it's really great. And it, just so you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the review and acceptance process. Your book is just reviewed exactly the same. Just think of it more as a platform and, and way to get the word out. The ongoing problem is how to pay for that, the subvention, and that's something that Mellon Foundation is helping with various experiments right now in the U.S., and, but it, it's not solved yet. Yes? Hi, thanks for this. Um, so one question about um, little requests and how annoying they are, um, and another legal question. Um, so, like, Katie Layout, asking for footnotes to be footnotes rather than endnotes, is that, is that kind of a big ask? And then asking, say, for pictures to be on the text pages rather than gathered together in, like, five pages of pictures, how, how annoying are these kind of questions, um, requests? Then they're not annoying. It's it's just that often we will have a model that we have to stick to, and there's a very for us there's a very good reason we've moved away from footnotes, and that's for the formatting for things like ebooks. Um, we have to go with endnotes. So there's very pra often when we're doing things, there are very practical reasons that may not be obvious for why we're do for why we're doing them, and it is to make sure content is as usable um, as possible in multiple formats. So. There is never any harm in asking, you know, we're always going to expl explain that. Um, and, and the same goes for how images appear, you know, there will often be a reason for things to be done in a certain way, but we're obviously always, we want you to understand that, you know, and, and understand why, why we have the certain approach that we have. So I would say just always ask. I mean, it's, we get a lot of emails, so obviously if you've got queries, putting them together into one email is always appreciated so things can be dealt with together as opposed to multiple. Um, but yeah, I would say just always keep in touch. Uh, a, a legal thing I don't know if there's a unified answer to this, but so I'm trying to write something that will have lots of copyright problems, mainly because of man manuscripts and multiple people, not one person. Do publishers have um, in house? Where, where do I need to get the legal advice from? Will the publisher have a lawyer who tell me, or do I need to come already knowing what I need to do? I think generally your publisher will give you a very good idea of what you need to do for permissions. They can't provide legal advice per se, um, you know. Well, they'll be able to tell you what their policies are, yeah. you know, uh -huh. what kinds of permissions they require. So, you right. know, there will be certain kinds of licenses um, depending on who, who you're getting permissions from, and each publisher will have a policy on which kinds of permissions 
and licenses they'll accept. Um, and so they'll be able to tell you that there might be cases where, where there's a little bit of ambiguity, but the pl publisher will oftentimes have some kind of rights expert at, their, uh, at the company uh, who the editor can turn to uh, if, you're, um, if your situation is a little bit ambiguous. It is rare for that rights manager to be a lawyer. Usually they have a lot of experience in it, but if there's a recommendation to go to legal counsel, your publisher will advise that you find someone who is an expert in that and work with that person. Um, it's worth saying we do actually have um, informer, so our big umbrella company, lawyers that we can go to particularly sensitive um, issues. We can seek legal advice. We, we do as well, and I should say though, I mean, there are different levels of usage yeah, of that yeah. consulting. For instance, um, the, the, the major um, concern in, in most cases for publishing or any kind of media is uh, issues of defamation yes. and, and um, libel. And so if there are concerns about whether you're depicting something that uh, would fall into the category of potential defamation, you should let the editor know immediately um, mm -hmm. because they will... I mean, depending on the situation, they might require a legal read of the manuscript to, uh, yeah. to see whether it opens them up to any kind of uh, litigation. <coughs> Frequently, you know, a publisher will almost always side with, with the author if, the, if an author is, um, you know, is accused of some kind of defamation. And so the publisher really wants to make sure that they're not going to be on the hook for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal fees. For sure. But we can give you legal advice. We can draw on our university council for advice. But there's, there may be a point where you have to spin off and get your own advice to help us. Yeah. But I mean, if it, if it is more around like permissions and things like that, mm -hmm. we've got so much experience of dealing with those issues, we should be able to answer any queries that you've got. I'm sure that's the same across the board. Yes. Thank you all for this. I have two reaching out questions. So one is, if you're not quite ready to put together a book proposal, is it still okay to reach out to someone and say, you know, I see you do this, I'm generally in that same area, just, just sort of a probing question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, great. <laughs> absolutely. Definitely. Um, and then if you are interested in a series that has uh, academic series editors, do you reach out to those people? Mm -hmm. How do you choose a person? Or do you still reach out to the, the editor at I think I would say that you can do either. Obviously, with series editors, if it comes to us, we're more than likely to pass it to the, the actual series editors initially first anyway. But either way, it will get to that series and, and, and be assessed for it. So there's no harm in either either approach, really, I would yeah, say. Yeah, and if you know the series editor, the, you know, the uh, scholar who's in charge, you should talk with them. But I, I think it can't hurt to send it to both the in-house editor and the series editor because we have conversations all the time and that uh, gives it a better chance of being discussed. Yes? Um, thanks for this. Uh, I was wondering if you could say any more about marketing or marketing support. Um, you know, obviously depending on the kind of book, but um, as you're in that matchmaking process with your editor, like what are the questions to ask or categories? So we will usually have marketing materials on the website to look at. So if the publisher has a catalog, you can usually download the PDF version of that just at the outset when you're doing research to see, do you like this material? Do you like how it's 
put together on the page. Um, when you're at conferences like this, it's a good time to see what the display might look like, um, who's there at the display. Um, and you, I'm trying to think of common places where things are marketed, right? Um, there's, there's a very robust piece of the puzzle and it looks a little bit different for everyone and it's changing a lot in the digital era. So publicity, you know, books go out to journals, they go out for reviews. If you're looking at a journal that you love, see if the books are getting reviewed, but uh, there's a lot of case by case in there. So. Yeah, always worth asking who do you send books, you know, are there journals that we automatically send books to? Mm -hmm. If you how many, if you were to give a list, for example, you know, how many would we be willing to send out for review copies? Completely depends on the type of book. I, you know, ask about the kind of support you would get if you're um, attending a conference, doing a talk, you know, can we send flyers? Mm -hmm. Would we be able to promote on social media? Um, I'd say authors are the best people to promote their books, as we've mm -hmm. already said, but we want to be able to support that. Um, so, if you know you're attending something that there is no no let us know we have a lot of books that we're taking care of so you know unfortunately sometimes things get missed but we want to hear from you we want to know what we can be doing so i think um definitely worth asking asking when you're talking to publishers you know what what can you do to help support me promote my book <coughs> do you do things like author interviews um mm -hmm. that kind of thing um trying to think We've got. Um, it's right to say that marketing is changing. It's changed so much in the in, in publishing constantly. Um, also worth finding out marketing. You know, not obvious marketing. So, for example, the marketing we do to libraries may not be our network may not be obvious from the outside. But you know, it's it's important to learn what are we doing to get your books into libraries. So, um, any kind of questions like that will give you an indication of what the publisher can offer. Yeah, does the, does the publisher come to this meeting, for example? Yeah. You know, if you're talking about scholarly books, other, other kinds of books are a whole different kind of picture, but not a whole different picture, but they have other stuff involved. But are they at the meeting? Do they do program ads, you know? Um, and then, yeah, ask, ask the editor what, what, what's the basic suite of marketing services that you should expect to receive, including uh, applying, you know, submitting for prizes in your field, um, getting review copies to all the like you know 10 main journals in the field um, uh, we, we have a very extensive marketing questionnaire that goes to the authors after the board meeting and and I always have to say finish your manuscript first before you do the marketing questionnaire even though they want it back like in two minutes but then we really take those ideas seriously what you have on there it's really extensive yeah and talk to you know talk to people that publish with various publishers and see how they. Although people will usually say they will complain. <laughs> and it is about being real, you know, being realistic about that marketing as well. You have to think all of us are publishing so many titles, so um, every obviously your book is incredibly important to you, and we want to be able to support that. Um, but you know, there's only so much that can be done, and so actually, us helping you promote it is, is the most productive thing that we can do. Just mentioned how marketing is changing. One example that I thought is kind of fun to think about from even the outside is things like metadata are really yeah. earlier and earlier. Mm -hmm. We're pushing out new metadata for pre-orders because 
we know that Amazon has algorithms that they run that are going to trigger purchases based on keywords, things like that. So you don't see that from the outside, but that you, is going on yeah. or oh, yeah. publishing today. And as marketing yeah. moves into these digital platforms, um, it's always helpful just to you know ask like, where's where are you with digital marketing? What do those campaigns look like at that moment that you're sending in your material? Probably hear a lot about discoverability. Yeah, like keywords the, and the keyword. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How does embedded volume proposal differ from a monograph proposal? And what is an appropriate timeline for reaching out uh, prior to the collective volume being put together? Um, we always say it, it's same as for an authored book, as soon as possible for us to hear from people. The only thing that really differs in the proposal is obviously information on who's involved and who's contributing. So if they're already um, kind of confirmed um, 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 for the volume, so a little bit about those that contributing. It's really the, the only difference to the core elements of the proposal. Um, Supporting material, like personally I would love to get chapters, at least very strong drafts from everyone because <coughs> that way they all do get peer review and attention a little bit. Um, sometimes it also cuts down on awkwardness. So if a reviewer can read all the chapters at once, they can say, you know, this idea for a chapter really isn't working early on and you can have that conversation with the contributor about cutting it or revising it or how you're going to handle that before the book is put under an advanced contract and before it gets scheduled. I know that oftentimes uh, volume editors, considering the edited uh, volume, uh, have a kind of catch-22 problem because they want to get people signed on to the project, but sometimes people won't sign on until they mm -hmm. know that the project has been accepted. Mm -hmm. So uh, for that reason, I actually would suggest you get in touch with the, with an editor uh, at, at an yeah. uh, interested, potentially interested press uh, earlier on in the process so that they can say to you whether it's, um, whether it would be of interest to them, whether it would be, you know, in principle, um, uh, open to reviewing it when it came when it came in, so that you when you go and do a call for for chapters, uh, you can share that that you have this kind of preliminary interest from a particular publisher, uh, and it'll you know grant some more heft to the request. Uh, we will also send out um, a proposal for review for edited collections to send out a proposal as long as there's a. Um, a significant amount of the t table of contents is uh, relatively certain, or you know, in principle committed to. Uh, and uh, we always prefer to have abstracts at the time, but um, we'll definitely uh, review a proposal on, and and potentially even grant a contract on the basis of a proposal and uh, a sense of what the table of contents will be, and then we review the entire manuscript before we uh, proceed with publication. I would say we are the same, so we not we will review on a proposal, and it all all contributions don't have to be formally agreed for us to offer a contract. And and uh, we do only a few edited volumes, um, and we prefer to talk with you early on so we can help you think about it as a, a book that isn't just a collection of essays, you know. That so there has to be a guiding vision for why this project can be done in this way um, and take advantage of the fact that there's many minds at work in it, you know what I mean? Rather than just, oh, this collection of papers we happen to have <laughs> from a conference or something. Yeah. So 
although they can be chunked now, sold, you know, one by one. So that, that it's, it's a little better than it used to be, the, the, the chapters. Yeah. Uh, a related question for a co-author, William. Is there anything that you you mean with two off, two full authors who will sign the contract? Yeah. Uh, well, I just no, not really. I, for us, it's there needs to be a reason, you know, why you're co-authoring it, and hopefully you'll get along till the very end because we've uh, all probably seen co-authored books where the people aren't even talking to you, and that's a problem. I was going to say, trust your partner. Yeah. yeah. I would say talk, just get in touch with the publishers to ask them. Um, I, you know, it, I would hope they wouldn't be stuck for several years. I don't know about you guys, but um, I mean, I can say from Riley's point of view, if we're talking about the production process, our books take around six months. There are variations on that. Um, and we're very lucky in that we don't, although our books go through an approval editorial board process, that, ha that is a weekly process. We're not waiting for set times for that. So we're quite a fluid, um, we've got quite a fluid process of things kind of constantly rolling. Um, you know, presses each are very different, so I'm not sure, um, but I, I can only give an indication of what Routledge is like. And I'd say that I, I would hope that it wouldn't happen. Um, I mean, if you haven't heard from us, I always say give us a nudge because um, after a period of time, because um, it may be that just in the mass of emails that we've got, but um, but we would hope not to hold up. For yeah, I think I think even though we're swamped, you need to expect professional. Yeah, there is no source for that information. Mm -hmm. No. I mean, well, if somebody wants to do an ethnography on it, that would be interesting. Uh, ask your friends. But um, you should expect professional responses. And yes, give a nudge if you haven't heard. You sh certainly shouldn't be waiting two years no, to hear. I mean, That's crazy. That's but also, I think crazy. there are some things that may not be told in anecdotal stories. Did the person hold it up in copy edits for a month yeah, and not move true. it back? Did that's the true. types that get... Did the editor or did the author refuse to move on the types that are refused to move on the cover? And mm. it, <laughs> authors. So there's two sides, I think, to these stories. So um, if that true. gives you any comfort, I guess, it, it would be very, I can't think of a project that's been held up for like a three to five year that seems I, terrible. I, 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 I mean, I'm sure there are. I'm sure, there's, I'm yeah. sure people can share those stories, yeah. and that's not it's very, it'll very, it'll very rarely, uh, horror stories will very rarely be representative of, of a press's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, mode of operation right. because it'll yeah. usually be some kind of very significant exception because, I mean, the presses that don't do this very well will probably go out of business. <laughs> uh, I mean, frankly, mm -hmm. you know, there's so much pressure in this industry uh, to produce good research and to produce good books quickly uh, in order to, you know, uh, have a reliable 
volume and list. So there's every incentive for them to do good work. Uh, I should also say that there's, you know, there are various phases to the whole process as we've been talking about, and so it can be held up or be, um, or be very efficient at any at any stage of that, right? So let's say for, for the, uh, from the moment you send in your proposal. Our one element of the response time from the editor will be whether it's during conference season um, and you know how much they're dealing with at that moment. There are various busy times, oftentimes at the end of the year, um, authors, uh, uh, editors are dealing with their final year contracts, so sometimes they can't get to new, uh, new proposals in as timely uh, a manner as they otherwise would. So that's the first uh, kind of phase, what, what your response time from the, from the editor is. The other is the review process, which tends to be the most, um, the largest range, um, because it really is dependent on the schedule and the efficiency of the peer reviewers. So often, when so typically when we send out a book for review, we ask for it to be turned around. We ask for the peer review to be turned around in four to six weeks. Yeah. Sometimes that turns into six to eight weeks, uh, and sometimes a reviewer ends up punting it after that six-week mark. You know, mark is over. And so it can be extended or might or shortened depending on on the efficiency of the reviewer. Uh, and then, of course, there's the revision period, and that depends on the author's ability to do those revisions. In some ways, what's interesting about this is the production schedule. Oftentimes, for these, for for large commercial presses, oftentimes the production schedule is the most reliable yeah. because <laughs> it's on. It's so it's streamlined, and at that point, most of the um, you know, the downstream issues that uh, um, will have been flagged or dealt with earlier on in the process. So that, that, um, that time period before the delivery of the final manuscript is really where the variables um, are most important. So to give you a range of what's typical, uh, I've seen books be published. Our, our production schedule is very similar to Routledge's, five to six months. Uh, except also our pivots. I imagine it's very similar to those. Right for this, for yeah, for these smaller books, it's usually a lot faster. For us, it's three months. Yeah, same. So, <laughs> uh, so the uh, I would say that that usually the review process is uh, completed in two to three months. Uh, that first review process and that first decision, and then the production schedule is usually five to six months. So that's. Uh, you know, so you're at least dealing with seven to eight months. I've seen books be published within seven or eight months of actually receiving uh, a proposal and some sample material. I've seen it also take two or three years, um, sometimes even longer depending on the type of project. If it's a big handbook project, it can sometimes take a lot longer because there are a lot more contributions. And so I would say the average is usually about a year. Um, you know, all things said and done from initial contact to the uh, publication of the book. It might be different at different presses. Yeah, it really depends on the type of book. Yeah. Well, after a, a rich discussion and a variety of pieces of uh, advice, one, one piece of advice uh, stands out to me, don't be shy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to make sure we have a few minutes for uh, informal uh, discussions as well. But please, before that, please join me in, in thanking our four uh, panelists.